Thomas Manton was imprisoned for nonconformity, in many ways a sufferer, and yet kept up a considerable interest at court, and with men of note and figure. The noble Earl, afterwards Duke of Bedford, who had for some time been his parishioner at Covent Garden, was his cordial friend unto his death, and so also was my Lord Wharton and many other persons of considerable quality. The general had the chair in the meetings of the dissenting ministers of the city, who found the want of his prudence, activity, and interest joined together when he was taken from them. He died, he died October the 18th, 1677, leaving behind him the general reputation of as excellent a preacher as this city or nation hath produced. Dr. John Owen was born in the year 1616. He pursued his studies with incredible diligence, allowing himself for several years not above four hours sleep in a night, so that he soon had made considerable progress in learning. Sometimes he would, for the benefit of his health, use some recreations, but chiefly such as were violent. It is impressible not to applaud the principle which this application discovers. The more a student can redeem from sleep and other indulgences, so much the better. But it is not every constitution that is capable of such an expenditure, and many an individual, in struggling beyond his strength for the prize of literary renown, has procured it at the expense of his life, or of the irreparable injury of his future comfort. Owen himself is said to have declared afterwards that he would gladly part with all the learning he had acquired in younger life, by sitting up late at study, if he could but recover the health he had lost by it. During the latter part of his residence at college, his mind became seriously impressed with the importance of divine truth. His convictions of sin were strong and irresistible. He was alarmed and terrified at the apprehension of his danger. He sank at length into the state of settled despondency which continued for three months. He shunned society and could scarcely be induced to speak, nor was it till five years had elapsed that he obtained true peace and joy through believing. In this state of spiritual distress, Owen quitted the family of Lord Lovelace and proceeded to London, where he hired private lodgings in the Charter House Yard. Soon after his arrival in London, he went one Lord's Day, observes his original and anonymous biographer, with a friend thinking to hear that eminent divine Mr. Calamy. But by some extraordinary occasion, that worthy person was hindered from preaching, upon which many went out of the church. This disappointment added much to Mr. Owen's trouble, and his friend endeavored to carry him elsewhere to hear another person of eminence, and so much the rather that it was not certain whether there would be anybody at that time to supply Mr. Calamy's place. But Mr. Owen, being conveniently seated, and too much indisposed to walk any further, resolved to stay a while longer, and if no preacher came, to return to his lodgings. At last a country minister, altogether unknown to Mr. Owen, as it seems he was to the parish, came up to the pulpit, and after a very serious and fervent prayer, took for his text these words, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Matthew 8, verse 26. The very reading of the words surprised Mr. Owen, who immediately put up a short ejaculation, that God would be pleased by that minister to speak to his own condition. His prayer was graciously heard, for Providence so ordered it that the minister raised and answered those very objections which Mr. Owen had commonly formed against himself. And what was remarkable, he managed them in the same method which Mr. Owen had frequently done in his own mind, though without effect. But it pleased the gracious God so to bless his sermon to him, though otherwise a plain, ordinary, familiar discourse, that it resolved his doubts, quitted his conscience, and laid the foundation of that spiritual peace and comfort 
which he afterwards enjoyed during the course of his life. This appeared to have been by the immediate direction of heaven, for Mr. Owen could never hear of the minister's name nor where he lived, though he made the most diligent inquiry. Mr. Owen's talents as a preacher and writer soon attracted public notice. He was summoned to preach before Parliament as its monthly fast on April 29, 1646. The sermon received the thanks of the House of Commons and was published at their request. It is entitled, The Vision of Unchangeable Free Mercy and Sending the Means of Grace to Undeserving Sinners. The title of the sermon fully explains its object. One or two extracts may be given as illustrative of the author's anxiety for the salvation of souls and may serve as a stimulus to the reader to seek more earnestly and spread more widely the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Quote, No men in the world want help like them that want the gospel. Of all distresses, want of the gospel cries loudest for relief. A man may want liberty and yet be happy as Joseph was. A man may want peace and yet be happy as David was. A man may want children and yet be happy as Job was. A man may want plenty and yet be full of comfort as Micaiah was. But he that wants the gospel wants everything that should do him good. A throne without the gospel is but the devil's dungeon. Wealth without the gospel is fuel for hell. Advancement without the gospel is but going high to have the greater fall. What do men need that want the gospel? They want Jesus Christ, for He is revealed only by the gospel. He is all in all, and where He is wanting there can be no good. Hunger cannot truly be satisfied without man of the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. And what shall a hungry man do that hath no bread? Thirst cannot be quenched without that living spring, which is Jesus Christ. And what shall a thirsty soul do without water? A captive, as we are all, cannot be delivered without redemption, which is Christ Jesus. And what shall the prisoner do without his ransom? Fools, as we are all, cannot be instructed without wisdom, which is Jesus Christ. Without Him we perish in our folly. All building without Him is on the sand, which will surely fall. All working without Him is in the fire, where it will be consumed. All riches without Him have wings and will fly away. A dungeon with Christ is a throne, and a throne without Christ is a hell. Nothing so ill but Christ will compensate. All mercies without Christ are bitter, and every cup is sweet that is seasoned but with a droop of his blood. He truly is the love and delight of the sons of men, without whom they must perish eternally, for there is no other name given unto them whereby they must be saved. He is the way. Men without him are canes, wanderers, and vagabonds. He is the truth. Men without him are liars, like the devil who was so of old. He is the life. Men without him are dead, dead in trespasses and sin. He is the light. Men without him are in darkness, and go they know not whither. He is the vine. Those that are not grafted in him are withered branches prepared for the fire. He is the rock. Men not built on him are carried away with a flood. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the author and the ender, the founder and the finisher of our salvation. He that hath not him hath neither beginning of good nor shall have an end of misery. Oh, blessed Jesus, how much better were it not to be than to be without Thee, never to be born than to not die in Thee. Oh, a thousand hells come short of this, eternally to want Jesus as men do that want the gospel. End quote. In Cromwell's time, he was sent to Dublin to manage the affairs of Trinity College. His time was fully and successfully occupied in his university labors and in preaching to thronging multitudes the words of eternal life. Nor were his labors, says John Rogers, without fruit. I have accidentally discovered two individuals, Dorothy Emmett 
and major man-warring who ascribed their first convictions to his preaching in Dublin. Many more, we may hope, will appear at another day. Mr. Owen, says Dorothy Emmett, was the first man by whose means in ministry I became sensible of my condition. I was much cast down and could have no rest within me, and so I continued till his going away from us, and at his going he bid me believe in Christ and be fervent in prayer. She afterwards obtained comfort. I heard Mr. Owen in Dublin, said Major Manwaring, who did me so much good and made me to see my misery in the want of Christ. These testimonies are extracted from a curious and scarce book by John Rogers, The Tabernacle for the Sun, in which the experience of a number of various religious characters in Dublin is recorded. The following are the particulars relative to the origin of his work on the 130th Psalm. Mr. Davis, who subsequently became pastor of the Independent Church at Rowell in Northamptonshire, being under religious impressions, opened the state of his mind to Dr. Owen. In the course of conversation, Dr. Owen said, Young man, pray in what manner do you think to go to God? Mr. Davis answered, Through the mediator, sir, to which the doctor replied, This is easily said, but I assure you it is another thing to go to God through the mediator than many who make use of the expression are aware of. I myself preached Christ, said he, some years when I had but very little, if any, experimental acquaintance with access to God through Christ, until the Lord was pleased to visit me with sore affliction, whereby I was brought to the mouth of the grave, and under which my soul was oppressed with horror and darkness. But God graciously relieved my spirit by a powerful application of Psalm 130. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. From whence I receive special instruction, peace and comfort in drawing near to God through the mediator, and preach thereupon immediately after my recovery. His sufferings previously to his death appear to have been uncommonly severe, arising from the natural strength of his constitution and the constitution of his maladies. But the truth which he had long preached to the edification and comfort of many, and in defense of which he had written so much and so well, proved fully adequate not only to support him, but to make him triumph in the prospect of eternity. On the morning of the day on which he died, Mr. William Payne, an eminent tutor and dissenting minister at Saffron Walden in Essex, who had been entrusted with the publication of his Meditations on the Glory of Christ, called to take his leave and to inform him that he had just been putting that work to the press. I am glad to hear it, said the dying Christian, and lifting up his hands and eyes as if transported with enjoyment, exclaimed, But, O oh, Brother Payne, the long-wished-for day is come at last, in which I shall see that glory in another manner that, than I have ever done or was capable of doing in this world. Dr. Owen was speechless for several hours previously to his death, but showed by the elevation of his eyes and hands that he retained the use of the mental faculties and his devotional feelings to the last. He expired on August 24, 1683, in the 68th year of his age. His remains were removed from Ealing to London, where they lay till the 4th of September, when they were conducted to the grave in Bunhill Fields, attended by the carriages of 67 noblemen and gentlemen, besides many mourning coaches and gentlemen on horseback. Such attention and respect bear testimony to the excellence of his character and to the high admiration of his spiritual and moral worth. End quote. John Bunyan for human learning, it is true, he had none. But let it not be therefore said that what was done by him is not worth our time or pains to read. For his conversion work or the new birth is not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of God. 
So our author's knowledge and insight into gospel mysteries was given to him by God himself, not by immediate inspiration, but by prayer and study, without any other external helps. His business was to converse much with the word of God and to pray over it. His labors therein were indefatigable, and God blessed him in so doing, with a more than ordinary degree of knowledge. Learning in its place is of excellent use of sanctified, yet certainly as those men are justly chargeable with folly in some degree of madness that will reject wholesome food if not brought in a silver dish, so those are besides the rule that will despise all those works in which there is not the savor of logical exactness or academical preparations. Though much of the anointing of the Spirit may be seen to have been on the heads of the authors, which doth clearly appear to have been on the head of this author, by the spirituality, soundness, and clearness of his writings, we shall not here detain thee with an account of the author's pedigree, education, conversion, or call to the ministry, it being done by his own hand in his treaties of grace abounding to the chief of sinners, but give us leave to say his natural parts and abilities were not mean, his fancy and invention were very pregnant and fertile, the use he made of them was good, converting them to spiritual objects, his wit was sharp and quick, his memory tenacious, it being customary with him to commit his sermons to writing after he had preached them. His judgment was sound and deep in the fundamentals of the gospel as his writings evidence. Also his experience of Satan's temptations and the power and policy of them, and of Christ's presence in and by his word, and spirit to secure and comfort him, was more than ordinary. The grace of God was magnified in him and by him, and a rich anointing of the Spirit was upon him. And yet this great saint was always in his own eyes the chiefest of sinners, and the least of saints, esteeming any where he did believe the truth of grace better than himself. There was indeed in him all the parts of an accomplished man, and for his piety and sincerity towards God it was apparent to all that conversed with him he was not only well furnished with the helps and endowments of nature beyond ordinary, but eminent in the graces and gifts of the Spirit and fruits of holiness. He was from first to last of, and established in and ready to maintain, the, that godlike principle of having communion with saints as such, without any respect to difference in opinion and things disputable among the godly, a true lover of all that love our Lord Jesus Christ, and did often bewail the different and distinguishing appellations that are among the godly, saying he did believe a time would come when they should be all buried. His courage was condescending, affable and meek to all, yet bold and resolute for Christ and the gospel's sake. He was much struck at in the late times of persecution, and his sufferings were great, he enduring first and last above twelve years' imprisonment, under all which he behaved himself like Christ's soldier, being far from any sinful compliance to save himself, but did cheerfully bear the cross of Christ, and when by reason of imprisonment he was restrained from preaching, he then spent his time, much of it, in composing that which might be useful and beneficial to the church of God, when in person he could not be so. His countenance was grave and sedate, and did so to the life discover the inward frame of his heart, that it was convincing to the beholders, and did strike something of awe into them, that had known nothing of the fear of God. And though his enemies and persecutors in his lifetime did what they could to vilify and reproach him, yet being gone, he that before had the testimony of their consciences hath now their actual commendation and applause. His conversation was as becomes the gospel, Ephesians 5, verse 6, Colossians 2, verse 6. He was imminent as a Christian, and as the minister of Christ, making that which God had called him to his business with delight. He was laborious in his work of preaching at home and abroad, and diligent in his preparation for 
at not doing the work of the Lord negligently, where he saw a cause of reproof, he did not spare for outward circumstances, whether in the pulpit or not, and is ready to administer comfort and succor to the tempted, a son of consolation to the brokenhearted and afflicted, yet a son of thunder to secure the dead sinners. He knew the worth of an interest in Christ by his own experience of the goodness of God, showing him on the one hand his natural pollution, guilt, and enmity, and that wrath that was due to him thereby, and the virtue of the blood of Christ on the other to free from all. And from that experimental knowledge did flow hearty desires and fervent prayers that the work of God might be effectually wrought on sinners, especially those among whom he labored in the word and doctrine. And matter of grief was it to him when he did not see conversion work on foot. Indeed, in the beginning of his ministry, God did own him in that work beyond what is ordinary, and in his latter years few, if any, were more successful in their work, we mean with respect to conversion. God was with him from first to last, and it may be said of him as of David in Second Samuel 7, verses 8 and 9. Some are now gone to glory with him, others are yet in the body who own him as the external instrument in God's hands of their conversion. His sole long continuance in the work of the ministry was a great blessing to the Church of Christ in and about Bedford in particular, over which the Holy Ghost made him overseer, his ministry being blessed to the edification, comfort, and establishment of the saints as well as the conversion of sinners. And he was also very useful, as he was an elder and pastor, first by his example, he being full of zeal and affection at all times according to knowledge, more especially at his administration of the Lord's Supper. It was observable that tears came from his eyes in abundance from the sense of the sufferings of Christ that are in that ordinance shadowed forth. And then, as a pastor, he was useful also by the accuracy of his knowledge in church discipline and readiness to put that in practice in the church as occasion offered, which he saw was agreeable to the word of God, whether admonition or excommunication or making up differences or filling up vacancies or paring off excrescencies, as he was useful to that church, so to the whole country round and to other churches where he did frequently spend his labors. Thousands of Christians in country and city can testify that their comfort under his ministry has been to admiration, so that their joy has showed itself by much weeping. And I reckon I shall not be out of the way if I ask, what has the devil or his agents got by putting our great gospel minister Bunyan in prison? For in prison he wrote many excellent books that have published to the world his great grace and great ingenuity. To instance one, the Pilgrim's Progress, he has suited to the life of a traveler so exactly and pleasantly, and to the life of a Christian, that this very book besides the rest has done the superstitious sort of man in their practice more harm, or rather good, as I may call it, than if he had been let alone at his meeting at Bedford to preach the gospel to his own auditory, as it might have fallen out. And it has been printed in France and Holland and New England and in Welsh, and about a hundred thousand of it in England. When Mr. Bunyan preached in London, if there were but one day's notice given, there would be more people come together to hear him preach than the meeting house would hold. I have seen, by my computation, about 1,200 come to hear him preach at a morning lecture at 7 o'clock on a working day in the dark winter time. I also computed about 3,000 that came to hear him one Lord's Day at London at a Townsend meeting house, so that one half were forced to go back again for want of room. He died in London at the house of his very loving friend, Mr. Strudwick, at Holborn Bridge in the year 1688, aged 60. The Puritan John Flavel. He was a minister at Dartmouth in Devon, 
Here God blesses labors to the conviction of many, and it is hope to their conversion also, particularly by his sermons on Revelation 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And this encouraged him to print these sermons under the title of England's Duty and so on, hoping that they might do good abroad as well as in his own congregation. Mr. Increase Mather, in his epistle before Flavel's sermon, says, I am informed by unquestionable hands that there was a remarkable pouring out of the Spirit when these sermons were delivered, a great number of souls having been brought home to Christ thereby. The Lord granted the second preaching of them to far greater multitudes by this way of the press may, by the same Spirit, be made abundantly successful for the conversion and salvation of God's elect. Mr. Luke Short, who formerly lived under the ministry of Mr. Flavel, but lately lived and died at Middleborough in New England, used to be often speaking with great affection of Mr. Flavel's powerful and successful preaching, and among other instances gave this, that one Lord's Day Mr. Flavel began his sermon with an introduction of this importance, quote, My dear sinners, you know I have been long endeavoring to set forth the Lord Jesus Christ and His amiable excellencies and all sufficiency before you, that if possible you might be allured to love Him. And I have used all the powerful arguments and motives I could think of to persuade you to come to Him and heartily embrace Him. And these winning methods you know are most agreeable to my natural temper and disposition. And I desire to rejoice in the hope that through the grace of Christ there are some among you who have been allured and persuaded to love and embrace Him. But alas, alas, I have sufficient reason to fear that there are others among you who have not yielded at all to my alluring representations of Him, nor all the cogent arguments and motives which I have been so long using and so frequently and earnestly pressing upon you. But, oh, after all I can say and do, you will not love Him. And now, alas, I must change my note. I must deliver a message to you that I am loath to deliver, but my Lord and Master requires it of me in order to deliver the whole counsel of God. It is that dreadful message in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. Let him be accursed of God, till God shall come and judge him. If any man or any one, whether male or female, high or low, rich or poor, old or young, love not the Lord Jesus Christ above everything in the world, let them, says the word and majesty of God, be anathema maranatha, accursed of God and the curse of God, until the Lord shall come and execute the fullness of his wrath upon them. Or words to this purpose, upon which the whole assembly was struck into a very great and visible consternation, some deeply affected for themselves and some for their children, and among the rest a gentleman of wealth and figure fell down as dead in his pew, though he revived in great distress of soul. He was much in self-examination and by grace attained to a well-grounded assurance of ravishing comforts, of which were many times shed abroad in the soul." We may guess what a sweet and blessed intercourse he had with heaven from that history we meet with in one of his works in which he evidently speaks of himself. I have with good assurance this account of a minister who being alone in a journey and willing to make the best improvement he could of that day's solitude set himself to a close examination of the state of his soul and then of the life to come and the manner of its being and living in heaven and the views of all those things which are now pure objects of faith and hope. 
After a while he perceived his thoughts begin to fix and come closer to these great and astonishing things than was usual, and as his mind settled upon them, his affections began to rise with answerable liveliness and vigor. He therefore, whilst he was yet master of his own thoughts, lifted up his heart to God in a short ejaculation that God would so order it in his providence that he might meet with no interruption from company or any other accident in that journey which was granted him. For in all that day's journey he neither met, overtook, or was overtaken by any. Thus going on his way, his thoughts began to swell and rise higher and higher like the waters of in Ezekiel's vision, till at last they became an overflowing flood. Such was the intention of his mind, such a ravishing taste of heavenly joys, and such a full assurance of his interest therein, that he utterly lost the sight and sense of this world, and all the concerns thereof, and for some hours knew no more where he was than if he had been in a deep sleep upon his bed. At last he began to perceive himself very faint and almost choked with blood, which running in abundance from his nose had discolored his clothes and his horse from the shoulder to the hoof. He found himself almost spent, and nature to faint under the pressure of joy unspeakable and unsupportable. And at last, perceiving a spring of water in his way, he with some difficulty alighted to cleanse and cool his face and hands, which were drenched in blood, tears, and sweat. By that spring he sat down and washed, earnestly desiring, if it were the pleasure of God, that it might be his parting place from this world. He said death had the most amiable face in his eye that ever he beheld, except the face of Jesus Christ, which made it so, and that he could not remember, though he believed he should die there, that he had one thought of his dear wife or children or any other earthly concernment. This account happened to the Puritan John Flavel. But having drunk of that spring, his spirit revived, the blood staunched, and he mounted his horse again, and on he went in the same frame of mind till he had finished a journey of near thirty miles and came at night to his inn, where being come he greatly admired how he came thither, that his horse without his direction had brought him thither, and that he fell not all that day, which passed not without several trances of considerable continuance. Being alighted, the innkeeper came to him with some astonishment, being acquainted with him formally. Oh, sir, said he, what's the matter with you? You look like a dead man. Friend replied he, I was never better in my life. Show me my chamber, cause my cloak to be cleansed, burn me a little wine, and that is all I desire of you at present. Accordingly it was done, and supper sent up, which he could not touch, but requested of the people that they would not trouble or disturb him for that night. All this night passed without one wink of sleep, though he had never a sweeter night's rest in all his life. Still, still the joy of the Lord overflowed him, and he seemed to be an inhabitant of the other world. The next morning being come, he was early on horseback. Fearing the divertisements in the inn might bereave him of his joy, for he said it was now with him as with a man that carries a rich treasure about him, who suspects every passenger to be a thief. But in a few hours he was sensible of the ebbing of the tide." And before night, though there was a heavenly serenity and sweet peace upon his spirit, which continued long with him, yet the transports of joy were over. He many years after called that day one of the days of heaven, and professed he understood more of the life of heaven by it than all the books he ever read or discourses he ever entertained about it. He was a mighty wrestler with God in secret prayer and particularly begged of him to crown his sermons, printed books, and private discourses with the conversion of poor sinners, a work which his heart was much set upon. It pleased God to answer him by many instances, of which two that follow deserve particular notice. 
1673, there came into Dartmouth port a ship of Poole. In her return from Virginia, the surgeon of the ship, a lusty young man of 23 years of age, fell into a deep melancholy which the devil improved to make him murder himself. This he attempted on the Lord's Day early in the morning when he was in bed with his brother. He first cut his own throat with a knife he had prepared on purpose, and leaping out of the bed, thrust it likewise into his stomach, and so lay wallowing in his blood till his brother awaked and cried for help. A physician and surgeon were brought, who concluded the wound in his throat mortal. They stitched it up, however, and applied a plaster, but without hopes of cure, because he already breathed through the wound, and his voice was become inarticulate. Mr. Flavel came to visit him in this condition, and apprehending him to be within a few minutes of eternity, labored to prepare him for it. He asked him his own apprehensions of his condition, and the young man answered that he hoped in God for eternal life. Mr. Flavel replied that he feared his hopes were ill-grounded. The scripture tells us that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Self-murder was the grossest of all murder, and so on. Mr. Flavel insisted so much upon the aggravation of the crime that the young man's conscience began to fail, his heart began to melt, and then he broke out into tears, bewailing his sin and misery, and asked Mr. Flavel if there might yet be any hope for him. He told him there might, and finding him altogether unacquainted with the nature of faith and repentance, he opened them to him. The poor man sucked in this doctrine greedily, prayed with great vehemence to God that he would work them on his own soul, and entreated Mr. Flavel to pray with him and for him that he might be, though laid, a sincere gospel penitent and sound believer. Mr. Flavel prayed with him accordingly, and it pleased God exceedingly to melt the young man's heart during the performance of that duty. He was very loth to part with Mr. Flavel, but the duty of the day obliging him to be gone. In a few words he summed up those counsels that he thought most necessary, and so took his farewell of him, never expecting to see him any more in this world. But it pleased God to order it otherwise. The young man continued alive contrary to all expectation, panted earnestly after the Lord Jesus, and no discourse was pleasing to him but that of Christ and faith. In this frame Mr. Flavel found him in the evening. He rejoiced greatly when he saw him come again, entreated him to continue his discourse upon those subjects, and told him, Sir, the Lord has given me repentance for this and for all my other sins. I see the evil of them now, so as I never saw them before. Oh, I loathe myself. I do also believe. Lord, help my unbelief. I am heartily willing to take Christ upon his own terms. But one thing troubles me. I doubt this bloody sin will not be pardoned. Will Jesus Christ, said he, apply his blood to me, that have shed my own blood? Mr. Flavel told him that the Lord Jesus shed his blood for them, that with wicked hands had shed his own blood, which was a greater sin than the shedding of his. To which the wounded man replied, I will cast myself upon Christ. Let him do what he will. In this condition, Mr. Flavel left him that night. Next morning, his wounds were to be opened, and the surgeon's opinion was that he should immediately expire. Mr. Flavel was again requested to give him a visit, which he did, found him in a very serious frame and prayed with him. The wound in the stomach was afterwards opened. Then the ventricle was so much swollen that it came out at the orifice of the wound and lay like a livid discolored tripe upon his body and was also cut through. Everyone thought it impossible for him to live. However, the surgeon enlarged the orifice of the wound, fomented it, and wrought the ventricle again into his body, and stitching up the womb, left his patient to the disposal of providence. It pleased God that he was cured of these dangerous wounds in his body, and upon solid grounds of a rational charity, there was reason to believe that he was also cured of that more dangerous wound which sin has made in his soul. 
Mr. Flavel spent many hours with him during his sickness, and when the surgeon returned to Poole after his recovery, Mr. Samuel Hardy, that worthy minister there, thanked Mr. Flavel in a letter for the great pains he had taken with that young man, and congratulated his success, assuring him that if ever a great and thorough work was wrought, it was upon that man. The second instance is this. Mr. Flavel being in London in 1673, his old bookseller, Mr. Bolter, gave him the following relation, that some time before there came into a shop a sparkish gentleman to inquire for some playbooks. Mr. Bolter told him he had none, but showed him Mr. Flavel's little treatise of keeping the heart, and treated him to read it, and assured him it would do him more good than playbooks. The gentleman read the title, and glancing upon several pages here and there, broke out into these and other such expressions, what a damnable fanatic was he who made this book? Mr. Bolter begged of him to buy the book and read it, and told him he had no cause to censor it so bitterly, and at last he bought it, but told him he would not read it. What will you do with it then, said Mr. Bolter? I will tear it and burn it, said he, and send it to the devil. Mr. Bolter told him then he should not have it. Upon this a gentleman promised to read it, and Mr. Bolter told him if he disliked it upon reading, he would return him his money. About a month after, the gentleman came to the shop again in a very modest habit, and with a serious countenance bespeaks Mr. Bolter thus, Sir, I most heartily thank you for putting this book into my hands. I bless God that moved you to do it. It has saved my soul. Blessed be God that ever I came into your shop. And then he bought a hundred more of those books from him, told him he would give them to the poor who could not buy them, and so left him praising and admiring the goodness of God. The Puritan John Flavel died in 1691. The next Puritan is Mr. Richard Baxter. In 1650 he published his Saints Everlasting Rest. This is a book for which multitudes will have cause to bless God forever. Among others, Mr. Janeway was thereby converted. In 1657, he published his Call to the Unconverted, a book blessed by God with marvelous success in reclaiming persons from their impieties. Six brothers were once converted by reading that book. Twenty thousand of them were printed and dispersed in little more than a year. It was translated into French and Dutch and other European languages, and Mr. Elliot translated it into the Indian language, and Mr. Mather in Elliot's Life gives an account of the Indian prince who was so affected with this book that he sat reading it with tears in his eyes till he died, not suffering it to be taken from him. It was translated also into Welsh. A good man said of this book that he thought it sufficient to persuade a man to anything but to holiness. What an affectionate preacher Mr. Baxter was may be partly gathered from the following passages in his sermon on making light of Christ and salvation. Quote, quote, you know not what it is that you have slight. Had you well known, you could not have done it. As Christ said to the woman of Samaria, John 4, verse 10, Hadst thou known who it is that speakest to thee, thou wouldst have asked of him the waters of life. Had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. So had you known what Christ is, you would not have made light of him. Had you been one day in heaven, and but seen what they possess, and seen also what miserable souls must endure that are shut out, you would never have made so light of Christ. O oh, sirs, they are no trifles or jesting manners that the gospel speaks of. I must needs profess to you that when I have the most serious thoughts of these things myself, I am ready to marvel that such amazing manners do not overwhelm the souls of men. 
that the greatness of these subjects does not so overmatch our understandings and affections as even to drive men beside themselves, but that God has always somewhat allied it by the distance, much more that men should be blockish as to make light of them. O Lord, that men did but know what everlasting glory and everlasting torments are. Would they then hear as they do? Would they read and think of these things as they do? I profess I have been ready to wonder when I have heard such weighty things delivered, how people can forbear crying out in the congregation, much more how they can rest till they have gone to their ministers and learned what they should do. Oh, that heaven and hell should work no more upon men. Oh, that everlastingness should work no more. Oh, how can you forbear when you are alone to think with yourselves what it is to be an everlasting joy or torment? I wonder that such thoughts do not break your sleep and that they come not in your mind when you are about your labor. I wonder how you can almost do anything else, how you can have any quietness in your minds, how you can eat or drink or rest till you have got some ground of everlasting consolation. Is that a man or a corpse that is not affected with manners of this moment? that can be readier to sleep than to tremble, when he heareth how he must stand at the bar of God? Is that a man or a clod of clay that can rise or lie down without being deeply affected with his everlasting estate, that can follow his worldly business and make nothing of the great business of salvation or damnation, and that when they know it is hard at hand? Truly, sirs, when I think of the weight of the manner, I wonder at the very best of God's saints upon earth that they are no better and do no more in so weighty a case. I wonder at those whom the world accounteth more holy than needs and scorns for making too much ado, that they can put off Christ and their souls with so little, that they pour not out their souls in every supplication, that they are not more taken up with God, that their thoughts be not more serious in preparation of their accounts. I wonder that they be not an hundred times more strict in their lives and more laborious and unwearied in striving for the crown than they are. And for myself I am ashamed of my dull and careless heart and of my slow and unprofitable course of life. So the Lord knows I am ashamed of every sermon I preach when I think what I have been speaking of and who sent me and that men's salvation or damnation is so much concerned in it. I am ready to tremble lest God should judge me as a slighter of His truths in the souls of men unless in the best sermon I should be guilty of their blood. Methinks we should not speak a word to men in manners of such consequence without tears or the greatest earnestness that possibly we can. Were not we too much guilty of the sin which we reprove it would be so? Whether we were alone or in company, methinks our end and such an end should still be in our mind and is before our eyes, and we should sooner forget anything and set light by anything or by all things and by this." Many a time he was brought very low while he was minister at Kidderminster, so as to receive the sentence of death in himself, when his poor honest praying neighbors there met together, and upon their fasting and earnest prayers he had been recovered. Once when he had been very low for three weeks together and was unable to go abroad, the very day that they prayed for him he suddenly recovered so as to be able to preach and administer the sacrament to them the next Lord's Day. Another time he had a tumor rose on one of the tinsels of his throat, white and hard like a bone above the hardness of a scurrus tumor. He feared a cancer and applied such remedies by the physician's advice as were thought fittest, but without alteration, for it remained hard as at first. At the end of a quarter of an year, he was under some concern that he had never praised God particularly for any of the deliverances he had formerly afforded him. 
And thereupon, as he was speaking of God's confirming our belief of his word by his fulfilling his promises and hearing prayers, as it is published in the second part of his saint's rest, he enacts some thankful mention of his own experiences, and suddenly the tumor vanished, leaving no sign where it had been remaining, though he neither swallowed it down nor spit it out, nor could ever tell what became of it. Another time, being in danger of agelops, he had also sudden relief by their prayers. God marvelously honored his praying neighbors at Kittermister by hearing their prayers in other instances. One Mrs. Giles had a son of about 14 or 15 who upon the removal of a fever fell into a violent epilepsy and had four or five violent fits in a day in which they were forced to hold a key between his teeth to save his tongue. The physicians used all ordinary means for a long time in vain, but at last the people of the town at her request kept a day of fasting and prayer at her house. And the second day he was suddenly cured and never had a fit afterward. One Mr. Cook removed from Kinver to Kidderminster and meeting with difficulties in his concernments fell into melancholy which afterwards turned to madness. He continued in it several years, the best means it could be being used to little purpose. Some were for setting upon fasting and prayer on his account. But Mr. Baxter discouraged it, having no hope of cure, his distemper being natural or hereditary to him, his father having much about his age fallen mad before him and never recovered. When he had continued in this condition about ten or twelve years, some would not be dissuaded, but fasted and prayed at his house with great importunity, and continued it once a fortnight for several months. At length he sensibly mended, and by degrees finally recovered." In the whole course of his life, Mr. Baxter had scarce a friend whom he more valued and respected, and by whom he was more beloved than that noted citizen Henry Oshurst, commonly known as Alderman Oshurst, who was the most exemplary person for eminent sobriety, self-denial, piety, and charity that London could glory of. He was a Christian of the primitive stamp, and did good to all he was able, especially needy ministers, to whom in Lancashire alone he allowed an hundred pounds a year. He left behind him the perfume of a most honored name and the memorials of a most exemplary life to be imitated by all his descendants. His true character may be seen in his funeral sermon preached by Mr. Baxter. Mr. Baxter himself died in 1691. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.